If you are a C.S. Lewis fan, you have probably read his Narnia series. You have probably read The Last Battle. And there is a scene in that book which is somewhat famous. It is an event that takes place after the good guys win. As, you know, Aslan is victorious and uh, Taz is, is vanquished. And on the side of Aslan, there had been a group of dwarves, little taciturn dwarves. Uh, they served with dedication, but now the battle is over and everybody else is celebrating because everybody is rejoicing in what they see. They see refreshing coming. Narnia is being blessed. Uh, goodness is, is taking place all around them. But these dwarves aren't doing that at all. Instead, they are sitting and grumbling and complaining because they don't actually see what is all around them. Everybody else sees the blessing, but they can't see it. It's not something they uh, have as a reality to them. And so even though the good guys have won, they're living like they didn't because they are literally in a different world, at least in their perceptions. Our psalm this morning is a creationist psalm. It begins with creation, it ends with creation, and specifically talks about seeing God in creation the first verse is, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And the final verse is, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So as that is our alpha and omega, that is our beginning and end, that is clearly what the psalm is about. It is about the name of God and specifically the fact that you can perceive it. In Scripture, a person's name is a symbol for their character, for their reputation, for their essence. A name is very significant. If the Lord's name is in all the earth, then... That means when you look at all the earth, you can see the fingerprints of God on the earth. You can see glimpses of his character. You can see glimpses of his goodness. You can see glimpses of the kind of person he is by what he has made. And the height of that knowledge is in verse 1, where uh, the glory of God is above the heavens, the glory of God is referring, of course, to God's essence, his personality, who he is. It's a restatement of the concept of the name. Uh, God can be seen in his creation. The doctrine of creationism is not an issue of just the first two chapters of the Bible. It appears all over Scripture. It appears in every venue. It certainly appears in many of the Psalms, and in this one in particular, uh, it is the very focus of it. God has created all things. You can see from all things who he is and how good he is. He is 
excellent. The term is emotional and descriptive. The psalmist looks and sees his God in his creation, and he's not able to really give words to how good God is. He exclaims, he boldly says, how excellent, how great you are. I can see in what you've made. Um, He claims God. O Lord, that is, O Yahweh, it's the name of the covenant God, O O Yahweh, our Lord, our Lord, how excellent you are. I can see how excellent you are in your creation. Uh, and, And all of this is actually about this world as it stands. It is not about the world as it was first created, but in its cursed state, in the state it currently is. Even with all of its frustration, uh, trouble, sorrow, oh Lord, our Lord, when I look on the earth, I see your name and I have to just exclaim how excellent, excellent you are, even in this condition. This is not the only psalm to do that. Psalm 19 begins this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Again, talking about this heaven, this earth as it is. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. A celebration and song of the goodness of God in this creation. Psalm 104 goes on in this vein at length and talks about God providing in this creation, and it's good, even as it stands. We read, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has set her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are the refuge for the rock badgers. He has appointed the moon for seasons, The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great, 
there the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them they gather in. You open your hand and they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath and they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirits. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. That is a joyful description of the goodness of creation, even under the curse, even under death, even under the occupation of sin. God can be seen providing and caring and blessing. But there is a slight note that is in slight disharmony in Psalm 104. After what I just read, when you get down to the end of the psalm, it has this verse. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. There are many an evangelical Bible reader who has wished that verse did not appear there because without it, the entire psalm is nothing but joyful praise, which causes the cockles of the heart to warm. But suddenly there is this discordant note. There are sinners. They are in the world, and God should destroy the wicked. That's not a popular message that doesn't get preached on. And it actually causes Psalm 104 not to get preached on as much as one might think. You have, in fact, the same kind of phenomenon in Psalm 139, which is how wonderful we're created. And then it ends with, may God destroy the wicked, and it doesn't get preached on either. Uh, why is that note there? Well, the note is also in Psalm 8, although it doesn't immediately jump up and hit you like it does in these other places. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Praise and wonder and glory. Uh, you have ordained praise from infants to do what? To silence the enemy and the avenger. That is also just a little disconcordant with the rest of the psalm. It is a celebration of God's goodness and, and, and the goodness of God's character and his creation. And you would think with everything the psalmist says about how excellent his glory is, anyone looking at this creation would agree with him. I brought... Calvin's instruction in faith. I was going to read out of it, but I realized this morning, to make my point, I'd have to read a lot more verbiage than would be worth it. Calvin goes on at length. But in his instruction on faith, Calvin says, if there had not been a sinful fall, that would be true. That if you looked at creation, everywhere you looked, every human of every stripe in every place would see the goodness, the wisdom, the majesty of God. It couldn't be missed, but it is missed by many today. 
the psalmist owns the Lord and says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent your glory. But then suddenly there are these enemies. There are even Avengers. What do those titles mean? Well, if you have an enemy, they don't like you and they want to uh, stop you. They want to thwart you. They want to hurt you, right? That's what an enemy does. Well, in context, these are enemies of, oh, Lord, our Lord. This is an enemy of God. And even more, there are Avengers. What does an Avenger do? Well, an Avenger is so hacked off at you that they believe you deserve comeuppance. And they are going to deliver it to you. They are going to hurt you. They're going to hit you. Again, in context, we're talking about someone who views themselves as an Avenger against God. O Lord, our Lord. How excellent, says the psalmist to us. But there are people out there who look at what you've created. And like those dwarves in Lewis's writings, they're not living in the same world as us. We see the glory of God wherever we look. We recognize how good God is. They look at the very same world and they see an opposite message. God needs to be opposed. God actually needs our comeuppance. We need to punish God. That becomes more of a theme in pop culture works than you might imagine. Uh, I didn't see it, but apparently even the last Clash of the Titans movie basically had that as a theme the gods need punishing. They're bad people. Man will punish them. There are people who feel that way towards our God. Two different worlds. We look at the world and we see things that are good, they have a totally different perception. Let's use our psalm as an outline of their perception. We can do so in four parts. The enemy, the avenger, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth or treating him unfairly if I say this is their point of view. God can be seen in the world, but he is not excellent. It was only, what, 15 years ago or so, Christopher Hitchens published the book, God is Not Great. It made the bestseller list. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Hitchens says God is not great. It's the exact opposite. But he has to acknowledge that God is in the world. Strange, that. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you will know that in that book, Solomon sets out to explore under heaven everything that is done under the sun, right? That phrase comes up over and over again, and it seems to be a phrase that says, I'm going to explore 
what I can perceive. That which is done under the sun is that which I can see, I can hear, I can touch. Uh, it's effectively almost a reference to the scientific method, what I can, can actually uh, verify. Well, you would think that if that was the goal of Ecclesiastes, there wouldn't be much reference to God in the book. But if you read Ecclesiastes, you hit God a lot. You hit passages like this, and this is only representative. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, says Solomon, who is investigating the world based on what he can see and experience. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. That's a lot of references to God in a book where the author is looking at things that can be perceived under the sun. Now, nowhere in the book of Ecclesiastes does the covenant name of God get used. The name Jehovah, the name that he reveals to Moses, the name I am that I am. It's El. It's, it's the general term for God. But Solomon says, when I look at the world, I see God all over it. In fact, uh, without even considering the covenant of God, really, you ought to fear God, because God is immensely powerful. Well, these enemies, these avengers, they would agree with Solomon. They would say, I can look at the world and I see God. Even those that say, I don't see God, will then turn around and say they do see God, because they will talk about how bad they hate God, and you can't hate an imaginary <laughs> being. I mean, you just can't do that. So you can see God, but he is not excellent. Um, second, um, one would have to be rather foolish and simple-minded to think that God is excellent, or maybe you might use the term childish. Our psalm talks about children. God appoints them to praise him, to silence the enemy and the avenger. But it's amazing to me in dealing with those who are the how often bring up childish. If you think that God loves you, if you think that God is a blessing to you, how childish you must be, how simple-minded you must be. Third, the heavens, the creation, the cosmos, 
are grand and wonderful and beyond imagination. Therefore, there must not be a God. That's the way it's usually presented, point three. Um, in talking to those who hate God, they will take you to the telescope and direct you to the heavens and say, look at all the immensity that is not the planet Earth. Look at all the wonder that is the cosmos, and we are but a small speck in that cosmos, just a, a mite of dust. We are nothing at all. How then could there be a God is the conclusion they draw. Uh, strange that, but that is what they say. And then finally, their fourth point of their worldview would be, man is subjected to all the caprice of nature, chemistry, and physics. And not only that, uh, the scripture says so in other places. Returning back to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon effectively says that in chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, where he says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. So uh, if I have constructed their mind aright, someone who thinks God needs a lesson or two, views the world as God isn't good, God has placed us at the whims of cancer, at the whims of financial misfortune. Um, our house might catch fire unexpectedly any time. Who knows their time? The best of men may die early in life. The worst of men may live to 102. Nobody knows. Uh, and the universe doesn't care. The universe is grand and glorious and majestic, and it doesn't even know you're here. Such is their perception. Our perception is literally the opposite of that. The psalm works us through those four points, but comes out first, God can be seen in the things which God has made. And they testify to his excellence and glory. When I teach at EKU, when I'm doing introductory principles to religion, one of the things that I have to walk them through is what are the academic possibilities of where religion has its origin? Because, you know, academia is all wrapped up in that sort of thinking. But one of the places I start is of the nine theories I put before them. The first one is religion is simply an intuitive grasp of an obvious reality. And I walk them through what can be described as the causation argument for the existence of God 
everything has an origin. Everything has a cause. You have an origin and a cause. Uh, your parents are your cause, and their parents were their cause, and their parents were their cause. Everything you touch or see or smell, everything is here for a reason, and what caused those things had reasons and onward back into the past. Much like a small child asking you the question, why, 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 and why again, everything rolls into the past of causality. But for such a reaction to take place, you have to have an uncaused cause. It has to be something totally of a different nature than causality. And there are a couple of things in our existence that seem to cry out for a uncaused cause that is good, that is glorious, that is gracious. Uh, just consider these things. There is stuff. Things exist. I realize that's kind of a no-brainer, but it didn't have to happen. There did not have to be a creation, but there is something here. Something caused it. And more than that, life exists in this causation. Again, that doesn't have to happen. All you have to do is go to the surface of Mars, and finding life is a little tough. You can have creation without life. It gets along perfectly fine, but life is a wonderful, remarkable thing beyond dis description, and life is here. Why is it here? Well, why is some life sentient, namely you and me? We are not just alive, but we have the ability to consider, am I doing good at being me? Do I, I have a sense of myself. I have a sense of my existence. There's all kinds of life forms on the planet that don't have that. Uh, your average cat or dog doesn't sit around and think, am I aspiring to doghood? A am, I, am I succeeding at that? But, but you do. That's part of you. You are sentient. You have a sense of self. Why is that? It's not required. Where did it come from? You can perceive joy. Have you ever thought about how difficult to define joy is? Or tragedy, for that matter. In a meaningless, random creation, the category of joy or the category of tragedy wouldn't exist because there would be nothing to really rejoice in or there would be nothing really to be upset about if you were a cosmic accident that came from nowhere and is going to nowhere. It really doesn't matter what happens in between. There's no tragedy, no ultimate meaning. But we live in a world where those things are extremely important to us and existentially we experience them. Or even humor. Have you ever stopped to think about how weird humor is? The Spirit of God did. If you go, again, to Ecclesiastes, 
in the very first uh, discourse that Solomon gives, he says, you know, I sat down to think about laughter and madness. This is weird stuff. And he's not wrong. You have something amazingly complex, something utterly good in humor that should not exist in a meaningless world. Those who believe that creation was created by a excellent creator, a glorious creator, see these things and they go, that is awesome. That is beyond my ability to put into words how excellent is the name of whoever did this. That's our point of view. Uh, secondly, seeing these things should bring out a childlike wonder in anyone who sees them. The concept of childishness is really kind of amazing in Scripture. Is being childlike or childish good or bad, according to the Scripture? It kind of depends on the context. Our Lord Christ in the Gospel of Matthew says this, Matthew 18, verse 1 through 3. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Those who want to avenge God consider us childish. Our Lord says, unless you are converted and become like little children, you'll never enter his kingdom. Uh, is it positive or negative? Well, depends upon how you view children. This passage, this psalm, is cited in the New Testament when very well-educated adult leaders of the community see our Lord Christ coming in on a donkey, and they are scandalized at him. But the children of Jerusalem perceive him to be what he really is, the coming Messiah, and they are rejoicing in him. And those who are the well-adult, educated leaders of the community say, tell your followers to be quiet, and Jesus looks at the children and says, they've perceived it, and if they didn't cry out, the rocks would cry out. There is a childishness that you don't want to be. There is also a childlikeness you never want to lose. We look at the wonder, the glory, the, the fascination of God's creation, and yes, it excites a childlike wonder in us that we will not apologize for. We are not jaded. We have not let our bitterness turn us into asking, who will show us any good? We believe that the one who created is excellent his glory above the heavens. Thirdly, um, the expanse of the heavens show uh, this wonderful God in wonderful ways. 
He has wisdom. <coughs> he has power. He has self-existence. He has infinity, and I could go on. It has well been pointed out that God has revealed himself in two books. He has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures, which are inerrant and perfect. He has also revealed himself in the book of nature. Nature is under the curse of God, and it is not what it used to be. In that sense, it could be seen as a marred book perhaps a book you left out in the rain and therefore is damaged. But it is still a book that testifies to the glory of God. And any objective witness should see these wonderful things. Instead of looking at the cosmos, which is infinite and vast, and saying, this proves man's insignificance, therefore there must not be a God, which I don't understand that argument to begin with, we look at the vastness, the glory, the grandeur of the distances of the cosmos and the multiplicitous things you find there, and we say the creator of this was creative. He was a genius. He was good. He was remarkable. He must be infinite considering how amazing the universe is. How could it not be? But then our fourth point becomes a little problematic. The avenger, the hater, the enemy says man is subjected to the caprice of nature, chemistry, and physics. Hasn't Solomon said so? We kind of have to agree the answer is yes because Solomon said so. The scripture said so. But there is more than that. It is true that the universe as it currently stands seems very harsh. But has it always been so and will it ever be? Here, we remind the enemy and the avenger that there are other passages in scripture. And we could go to Genesis 3 where we read why it is harsh there we read, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. It is, no question, first is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Yeah, what they're perceiving is real. But there was a verse before this in Genesis 3, and that was this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, there's going to be one who's going to undo what has been done, 
that's going to happen. And here is what's going to happen. But there's going to be this one that's going to change it all. Our psalm ends with, isn't it amazing how God has considered man? He is infinite. He created the infinite heavens. Man is but a vapor, but God cares for him. God even put everything under his feet. Well, from the moment the psalmist wrote those lines, there must have been several people out there who would hear them and say, I don't really experience everything being under my feet. In fact, that seems very, very alien to me. In fact, that question must have been so dramatic that it makes its way into the New Testament. In writing about our Lord Christ, here is what the writer of Hebrews has to say. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, what comes next is a direct response to our question. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So in responding to the avenger, in responding to the enemy, we have to say, yes, Psalm 8 is celebrating something that took place in the beginning. God placed everything under man's feet, but we're not experiencing that now. But we can still see it because there is one who walked among us and still walks among us for whom it is true. We don't see mankind having dominion like he was given, but we do see Jesus. What do we see Jesus do? We see Jesus talk to the wind and the wave and say, I'm taking a nap, y'all knock it off. And everything become absolutely calm. We see Jesus coming into the town of Nain where a widow's only son is being carried out dead, and Jesus saying, nah, I think I'll change that, and the dead rise. We see Jesus providing food for his companions out of five loaves and two fish, because he wants to. We see Christ driving out demons because he has authority. We see Christ having true dominion, and he is the Son of Man. What an amazing dominion was offered to Adam. You will be my under-shepherd. Everything will be put under your feet. It is not true of all of Adam's descendants now but one. But we see it in him. We see our Lord Christ exercise that dominion. We see the perfection of the beginning. And more than that, we were promised one 
who would crush the serpent's head. And the writer to Hebrews, when quoting our psalm, says, this is the one. He has tasted death to restore everything. So we live in a world with other people who live in the same world, and it's a totally different world. We are able to sing Psalm 8 and celebrate the glory of God in creation. They cannot do that. They are enemies and avengers. What is the key? Well, the writer to Hebrews would say the key is Jesus. When you are able to see Jesus, when you are able to see what man is supposed to be, when you are able to see God delivering man, even though man is utterly insignificant in comparison to him, when you are able to see Jesus, suddenly the joyful strains of Psalm 8 can be sung. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is above the heavens. So it is when you see through Jesus. But like the dwarves in Lewis's book, the enemy and the avenger cannot see through Jesus. They cannot see that God is good. They cannot see that he is gracious. And indeed, they will never touch those things of God until they do touch them in Jesus. Psalm 8 can only be sung in Jesus. Thanks be to God that in his grace, we can see creation for what it is because we have seen Jesus.